All right. Uh, hello, Slate Plus members, or I guess I'm filling in for Julia. So hello, Slat Plus members. Uh, I, Steve, had to leave, so I am here with Dana Stevens, and I am going to turn the spotlight on her uh, and find out from her everything that you have been desperate to know about uh, where she was for that long stretch earlier this year. Dana, you were writing a book. What was it? Uh, what will it be? You mean, let's not get to the past tense too quickly here, Gabe. Sure. And may I also mention that I probably wouldn't be talking about this if Julia and Steve weren't out right now. So it's nice that you're hosting the Slate Plus. I'm going to be a uh, gentle and non-aggressive questioner and and subtly winkle out all the information (laughs) that you would never reveal in a normal Culture Fest segment. Yes, that's right. I took a a break last year to sort of get started on the research for this book. Um, I would say that I'm about one quarter of the way through a first draft. First draft meaning a draft that has, you know, sections that say things in capital letters like find evidence here. (laughs) That's how first draft we're talking about. Uh, And I'm hoping to take another sabbatical at some point next year to work on uh, on the second chapter. But I'm yeah, I would say about close to 100 pages in, depending on what you call a page. And the book is about the silent film actor and director Buster Keaton. That's correct. And I'm writing about him. It's not a biography. As I've said it, I feel like many a cocktail party now. It's, I'm not trying to top the uh, the three all impressive in their own ways, if flawed in their own ways, biographies that have been done of Buster Keaton. This is a, a more of a um, broad perspective kind of look at his life. I mean, if when we talked to Jack Hamilton earlier about his book about race and rock and roll, if if Brown Sugar was kind of his, his way in, if it was the, the questions and problems that song creates that made him throw himself into the book project... I would say that my brown sugar moment uh, has to do with Buster Keaton's childhood. It's not a book entirely about his childhood. That happens to be the part I'm in now. But I feel like when he's talked about as a as a filmmaker and as a performer, this incredibly important segment of his life and of the late 19th and early 20th century that formed him is always left out. And uh, and when I read biographies of him or, or look at his work now, I, I always sort of feel like there's this secret, you know, this secret that's concealed within it, which is that... Buster Keaton was an incredibly well-known and uh, highly reputed performer before he was ever an adult and before he ever stepped in front of a camera. So even though I've been working on this book for over a year now, I've barely started to talk about film. I'm I'm talking about vaudeville and about, you know, other turn-of-the-century performance forms that kind of turned into film as as the century changed. Like what was a what if I had gone to see Buster Keaton as a child performing in vaudeville, what would I have been seeing? That's what I'm trying to find out right now. And because vaudeville journalism is is very very different, even from the film journalism that came shortly after, it's it's really hard to tease out exactly what was in the act. You know, for one thing, because PR and journalism were so closely braided together that it's hard to tell whether Buster's father Joe, who was part of their family act, the Three Keatons, is is the semi author. You know, of of many of the responses. But there are also, you know, legitimate vaudeville reviews. And there's the very beginning of something like a journalistic field of criticism emerging. And uh, and so there are some pretty remarkable descriptions of what their act was like, even if it's not in the mode of an oral history like we would like to have today. There's also no filmic record of their act, as is true of almost all the vaudeville acts of turn of the century, although film existed. Film was born the same year as Buster Keaton, or at least the popular year that's given for the birth of film when the Lumiere brothers first projected their little short movies is 1895, the year of his birth. Um, but there's no filmic record of the three Keatons performing. Descriptions of the act and reviews of the act 
seemed to show that it was a kind of, well, it was known for one thing as one of the roughest acts in vaudeville. It was a father-son, almost Homer and Bart Simpson sort of, um, you know, mutual mischief-making knockabout act. And for most of the act's existence, which which it, it, it played in, in its basic form, the three Keatons, which was Buster, his mother and his father, his two younger siblings were briefly involved in the act, but didn't last very long in it uh, for all of his young life, basically, until from about age five until he was about age 20. And uh, and the essential form of the act seems to be that Buster's father would come out on stage and start to give this this ponderous kind of Victorian speech about child raising and the proper methods of child rearing and how we must be gentle yet firm with our children. And in the middle of this peroration, Buster would either appear on stage behind him and bounce a basketball off his head or whack him with a broom or trip, trip him in some way. He would find some way to physically interrupt his father's discourse and then be picked up by this suitcase handle that his mother used to sew into the back of his costumes and thrown across the stage. So it was this sometimes into the audience, sometimes into the scenery, and it was extremely improvisatory. It would change based on you know what props they had around and what venue they were playing, and it was extremely violent. And those two things together along with, obviously, this child's unnatural acrobatic gifts, made the act very, very popular. Child acts were really, really popular at the time in general, but nothing like this. There was nothing that was based on, essentially, what we would today consider child abuse. So that's what I mean. That's my brown sugar, is sort of, what did what did this act have that appealed to people? How did it hone the skills of this person who went on very seamlessly, without very much of a transition at all, to being this incredibly talented artist in a brand new form? And how did these two art forms kind of flow into each other? That's the question that I'm trying to answer with my research now. And are, did you come at this because you, you're a fan of Buster Keaton's films? Is it like – is that where the passion starts or, or were you just – did you discover this untold story and become interested in that? No. I mean it's, for one thing, it's not an untold story. In, in, some form, in some form, you know, this comes up in every online bio of him. I just think it's a story that hasn't kind of been plumbed for its actual um, cultural richness yet. Uh, yes, I've been a Buster Keaton fan since at least 20 years, I would say. And I consider him, as I think we talked about in our Mount Rushmore segment earlier on this show, really one of the great American artists and someone whose life and career also exemplify and kind of perform so many things about 20th century history that to, to look at his life kind of segment by segment, and we're talking right now about the early part, but I mean these kind of these kind of questions re- emerge later on too, is really to look at the history of the time he was living in. I mean he he was he was indirectly or directly involved in so many parts of cultural history of the early 20th century. The the Fatty Arbuckle trial was something that he wanted to testify at, but was not allowed to essentially by his agents because it might have brought his career down as it did Roscoe Arbuckle's. Um, The Depression, the Great Depression, is something that descended on the U.S. at exactly the moment that Buster Keaton's Great Depression and what he calls the worst mistake of his career, which was signing away his independent production company, happens in his life. And so there's this kind of um, there's this kind of mirroring of cultural anxieties in general and sort of the anxieties of, of Keaton's life in this way that seems like you couldn't have scripted it. You couldn't have made a novel out of it. It's so poetic and so profound that it has to be real. This is the first time you've written a book, right? What, what, what is the experience of working on a book like for you? Uh, maybe too early in it for me to answer that with, um, you know, the, the gravitas it deserves. I'm really having fun with it right now. When I get to it, I would say that the book occupies in my in my intellectual life right now something like the place of a an exciting new lover. You know, it's the thing that I want to sneak off to and and have time for during during the work week. And and when I do get to it, 
I'm just I'm thrilled to be doing it. But I know that the process of writing a book, and I know this from writing a PhD dissertation, the only long form work I have completed. You know that there are periods of disenchantment and periods where it does not at all feel like sneaking off to meet a lover, but sort of like slogging off to to the grind once more. Um, at the moment, I would say that I'm I feel very lucky to be writing this book and very happy to be writing it, and I just hope that what seems to me a fascinating story that can be told in a new way really is is so for the people who are will eventually read it. I bet it will be. Thank all you. right. Thank you for, for talking to Slate Plus members about that. That's all I've got for now, Gabe. All right. Um, and good luck with it. Thank you. Can't wait to read it. Okay. Thank you, Slate Plus members, and we'll see you next time. Or I won't, but uh, Steve and Dana and Julia will.